Hi, everyone, and welcome. You are listening to Speeching It Real, a podcast where I interview future and current speech language pathologists. Here, you can learn all about what it's like to get started in the field, see how paths and interests change, and connect with people going through the same things you are. I am your host, Chris Ubieta, and I am currently a second year grad student at CU Boulder. Quick disclaimer, all statements and opinions on this podcast are not reflections of the organizations or schools associated with the speakers. Each person's words reflect their own opinions, including my own. Hey everyone, today I am joined by Gabriella Gizzo. She is a school-based SLP in New York and the author of Sophie's Special Story. Today, we're going to talk about the school setting and her incredible book, which is based off of her cute puppy, Sophie. Hey guys, today I am joined by Gabriella. How are you doing today, Gabriella? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm so excited that you're on today and to talk about your book. I think this is going to be so exciting. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and always excited to talk about the book and all things speech therapy. Awesome. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am 28 years old. I am based in New York, born and raised in New York, but I actually am licensed in New York and Connecticut. And I did my undergrad at Loyola University, Maryland, and then my master's at Adelphi University. And I pretty much have always worked with children in some capacity. I currently work in the school setting. And recently, I published the book, Sophie's Special Story. Awesome. When you went to undergrad, did you study SLP or communication sciences and disorders? Yeah. So I pretty much always knew that I wanted to be a speech therapist, like since I was a child. I saw, I'm the oldest in my family, and I saw a lot of family friends of ours, their children were receiving speech services. So because I got that exposure at a young age, I fell in love with it. So it was really easy for me to declare my major, you know, when I was at Loyola. I love that. How did you, how did you even hear about speech when you were younger? Um, I just honestly witnessed a session with a family friend's son who was doing, you know, receiving it at the time he was receiving home care for early intervention and just seeing how cool it was that the speech therapist was working with him, you know, using play therapy. I just thought this is so cool. Like I want to do that. Um, and you know, I was about eight or nine, uh, so I was a little bit older. It wasn't like I was like super, super young, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was a very unique experience. That's awesome. Let's go back to when you were in grad school. You graduated not too long ago. What was that like for you? I think you graduated in 2020, right? I did. I did. Oh my so gosh. Yeah, we, um, So, yeah, I graduated during that crazy height of COVID and Adelphi, just like all everything else, kind of shut down March of 2020. And we, you know, were expected to graduate May of 2020. So we were like, we almost made it. It was just like a few months. Oh, my gosh. Um, I know. And the hardest part, honestly, like as anyone who is in the field knows, is that when you're doing your second year, you're doing a lot of like off campus work or your clinical externships. And that was the hardest part because 
hospitals weren't letting anyone in unless you were like absolutely necessary schools you know were all remote so you couldn't get hours that way Mm -hmm. so that was definitely like the craziest part Mm -hmm. I mean we still were able to get our hours and graduate on time and it definitely taught me a lot about being a remote SLP which I have now extensive you know knowledge about but Mm -hmm. yeah it was a crazy time oh yeah I cannot imagine like I already have anxiety about externships and applications for that and CFs and like you were in the thick of it at that time, which is so intimidating, but also it makes you resilient, I would imagine. Yeah, thank you. I mean, honestly, it was just, it was so unexpected because like everything was like, you know, going along fine and nobody really expected it, of course, to get as bad as it did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're at that point in grad school, you just like want to be done. Like, you know, like you have that senioritis, you just want to be done. And grad school in and of itself is like you said, like already stressful and has all of the challenges. Um, But then once you get through it, you are prepared like for the real world. So you'll be good. You'll be good. Good. Thanks for that validation. I needed it. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that you always wanted to work with kids. Did you know you wanted to work in a school setting? Did you consider other types of settings? What was your thought process around that? Yeah, I mean, pretty much my end goal was always to be in a school. I like the structure of like eight to three. I like, you know, having summers off. I like um, that you get paid no matter what. If the kid is doesn't come into school that day, you know, you can see another student, you still get paid. I worked at like a private practice clinic setting for a short period of time as well. Also for children, it was early intervention and then preschool age. Mm-hmm. But the downside to that, at least for me, was that it's just kids are so unpredictable and kids get sick or things come up at home. And then if the child can't show up to the session, you don't get paid because you can't bill for it. So that to me, you know, especially starting out, you know, right from grad school, you have loans, bills to pay life. So that was the hard part in that setting. And like I said, yeah, I always liked kind of the structure of school. That's great. So I want to get into the school side of it. But before we jump into that too much, I want to ask a couple more questions about grad school, if you don't mind. (laughs) You finished your externships in 2020, correct? Yes. And you had to look for your CF in 2020? Yes. What was that like? Were they, were people going back to school? Was your first, was your CF in a school? No. So my CF, I actually, so my CF was a little bit interesting because I had to do it twice, actually. Not because of anything COVID related, because I don't know if, like you're familiar, ASHA had updated their 2020 standards like a few years back now in 2020. They updated one of their science courses. Oh, yes. For the undergrad level. Yes. yes. So we, my graduating class at Adelphi, we did not know about this until we were like ready to graduate and then COVID happened. So one of my science courses, unfortunately, from undergrad did not count. Mm. And until... I got that course that ASHA approved and Adelphi approved, then I could start my CFY. Oh my God. Because if I did it before, my CFY hours wouldn't count. So my oh. CF was a little bit like crazy in that way. Um, but when I was looking for specific CF 
places to apply to, pretty much all the schools were still remote or at least doing more of like a hybrid situation. Like they would be like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It was like in-person Tuesday, Thursday, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, would be the opposite. But my initial CF was actually doing more home care because I thought that was going to be easier with COVID. Mm -hmm. But it turned out it was kind of just as complicated because some parents like would be okay with you coming in the home. Some parents weren't. Some parents were okay, but they didn't want you to bring in toys for, you know, their, the children. So it still kind of had its challenges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Would you ever go back to a different setting than a school since you've had like exposure to both of them? Or a few? Honestly, probably, probably not. I definitely would stick with the schools. Mm -hmm. And I've worked now in different districts in different states. And I'll probably stay with the school that I'm currently at for like a while, like if not until retirement, because I'm very, very happy with where I'm at. So like it took some time. But then once you kind of find your place, mm -hmm. it's worth it. Okay, I'm going to ask more about this because I saw that you recently change because I looked at your LinkedIn I did my <laughs> job doing my job here research <laughs> but I do want to hear more about that but before we do that do you have any advice for graduate students who are looking at working in the school during their externship so when they're first getting their feet wet in that system they're not fully integrated yet what are some of the things that they should be looking at and thinking about while they're in that setting but not fully in it yet yeah, that's a good question. I mean, first, always my kind of blanket advice to any SLP grad student and even CF is try to give yourself a break. You're not supposed to know everything. I can remember in grad school and, and even in my CF, like we put so much pressure on ourselves that we're supposed to know everything. We're supposed to have it all figured out, but you're not. You haven't been in the field, you know, for 40 years. You're not supposed to be an expert. When you're in grad school and you're CF, you're like in the infancy stages of your career. And what you will realize too, as you get out in the real world is you will learn so much more on the job, whatever setting that you work in versus there's only so much the classroom can teach you, so you know, fair. and that's just, yeah. And that, and that's just like the reality of it. And then for the grad students specifically looking to do an externship in the school setting, I would say be open-minded. Um, a lot of schools, so kind of the tricky part with schools is that different districts and different states do things differently. So you could do your CF, let's say, because I'm from New York, I could have do my uh, CF in New York, but if I did like my um, you know, externship down in Connecticut or Maryland, the rules and the laws of the states might be different. Your paperwork might be different. So just keep an open mind with that. I would just also ask a lot of questions with who you're working with. What are the hours like? You know, um, how often do you plan your sessions? Do you see a lot of group students? Are they, you know, individual students? Are your students, do they have any devices? Is there a bilingual population? Do you have monthly staff meetings? Just to try to get a feel for the school. It also depends on the school that you're working at. Like in the past, I worked at just gen ed public schools. This year, I'm in a very specialized school. 
So it's completely different than just a regular public school. So it kind of depends on what school you also go into. Okay, perfect. You you got me thinking of another question. So I wrote it down so okay. I didn't forget. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's jump into the school setting because we're just getting all ramped up and we're getting into it and I'm excited to know more. One of the things that interests me is that you have a separate certification and I think it's because in the state of New York, you have to have something called the TSSLD. Can you explain yes. what that is and the process of obtaining it? Yeah, so it is. It's a New York thing. Um, so basically, when I was in graduate school, it's actually mandated. Um, so everyone who was in my graduate program, mm -hmm. you kind of, when you got accepted into the program, you also were doing this certification alongside it. And it stands for, I believe, Teacher of uh, Speech Students Language Disorders. Okay. If I can remember that correctly. Okay. But it's just honestly, it's an additional New York certification. And you just had to take some additional, like basic class, like courses for this certification. But it really wasn't anything like crazy, or like hard. It was just some additional coursework and applications that you had to do for the state of New York. Okay, so if I don't know if you know this answer, if you in theory wanted to go to New York, after so let's say I was in DC and I wanted to move to New York would I be able to obtain that certification separately from the university so I believe you can the thing is to like specifically for the TSSLD if you want to work with children in New York you need that okay. like my friends that were um, going to do a medical setting they were like, why do I really need this? Because I'm going to be working with adults like an outpatient or in a hospital. But I know specifically if you're working with children in, in New York State, they require it. Um, but I'm sure you would be able to easily apply for that. Okay, cool. So yeah. another thought. You are one of the first people I've spoken to who's dually, sorry, dually certified in two states, Connecticut and New York. What is that like? And how did you decide to get certified in two places? Yeah, it actually kind of happened by accident. So I, um, like I said, born, you know, born and raised in New York. And then um, probably two ish years ago now, I got hired by an agency and they were going to contract me to work with a school in Connecticut. So that's kind of how the whole Connecticut license started. Um, but really the process was very similar to applying for the state of New York. Um, you just fill out the application, you know, put in the ASH information, your supervisor checks it over and then you pay the state of New York, you pay the state of Connecticut. And then, um, that's pretty much it. I mean, the thing that's cool about New York, Connecticut and Pennsylvania is they have reciprocity. So it's easier to get licensed or for your information to kind of be transferred over with those three states versus if I was to go and try to apply like out in California or like Nevada, like then it would be like much harder for me. Got it. Okay, well, thanks so much for telling us about that. I was super interested in like if you had to take any kind of tests or anything like that. But since they have reciprocity, that makes sense that you wouldn't have to. Yeah. I guess if you were in Connecticut, though, and you wanted to get a dual license in New York, you'd still have to get that TSSLD if you were in like a school system or private yeah, practice. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. So you've worked in this school setting for a while, about a few years. 
what populations in the school have you seen? And then what different types of clients have you been seeing? Yeah, I honestly, pretty much honestly have seen everything. And it's so funny because my friends that work in more of like the private practice setting, they say to me like, oh, schools must be like so boring. And I'm like, I think it's the opposite because at least in my experience, like I have seen so many, yeah, just different types of clients ages about like two years ago, I was working with preschool, elementary and middle school students. So they have me at three different schools. So I have worked with students from, you know, three years old, all the way up to 15 years old. Same thing with my current caseload. I have seen children, you know, cerebral palsy, intellectually disabled. My current caseload, they're all visually impaired, autism, children that are just, you know, speech students only. So yeah, I mean, I really have seen a range. You name it, you've got it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We learn a lot about the school setting in university for us as students because that's one of the big areas that SLPs go into. But you never really know what a day-to-day looks like unless you're in there, right? Could you tell us what a simple day-to-day would look like and then what a more chaotic day-to-day might look like? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you both. So when I was in like a just like a regular gen ed public school, like last year, you know, a regular simple day would be, I might have like, let's say three or four sessions in the morning, probably a mix of like individual and group students. I might have lunch and then I might have like three or, you know, four more sessions, depending on how many students you treat a day. And, you know, for those sessions, the great ones, it's you can you either push out or pull in, but the student transitions beautifully, right? Loves the materials, you know, responds really well. Um, and, and then in my, I'll give you my current school that I work at because it's very different than a regular public school. Mm-hmm. A good day for me is I have 10 sessions a day, but all of my students are seen individually because they have such severe impairments. So I will either push into the classroom or pull them out. But a good session, first of all, is that my students are awake. Some of my students are on very heavy seizure medication. So sometimes when I go to work with them, they might be very sleepy or they might be asleep. So I might have to pull them at another time. So it's always good if I go in there, they're awake. And then if they respond well to whatever goal that I'm working with them on, whether it's using their device or activating a switch, obviously the harder days are when they, you know, drop to the floor in the hallway, they have a meltdown. Like I said, they're asleep. So, you know, it varies, but that's kind of like the gist. Because I know your settings and your population, not population, but the setting is kind of different for the school you were at before was a public school. Now you're in a school for the deaf, correct? And visually impaired? They're visually impaired and cognitively impaired. Okay. For some reason, I thought it was together. My bad. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) So is that a private school or is it still a public school that has a focus? 
so I guess technically it's considered public. So it's funded by the state. Mm -hmm. And what happens is they pull the students from all over New York. So I have students that come, the school is, is based in the Bronx. I have students that come from Brooklyn, Bronx, Westchester, Long Island, Rockland. And essentially these students couldn't be successful in a regular public school classroom. So they get evaluated by our intake team and it, everything is funded through the state. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the biggest differences then that you've seen? I mean, working with the students, I think, honestly, it's like, it really opened my eyes as a speech therapist because like so many of our just materials and prompts that we use like are visual, mm -hmm. right? And they're only 2D. But then I had to switch my thinking pretty quickly because some of my students do have vision, but it might be like they can only see if like the lights are off and there's contrast or maybe they have vision in their left eye and not their right eye. So they're not all of them are completely blind, but still I had to adapt to how am I going to prompt them? What am I going to use to prompt them and support them? So that was definitely a major difference. How did you, how did you get here? Like what a unique opportunity. Yeah. It, it's like, you don't really even think that's something you're going to be doing as an SLP. And it's such a, oh, you got to be really quick. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, it was like it was kind of like random. I was on Facebook one day and there's, you know, certain speech uh, Facebook groups that I'm a part of. And um, someone had posted that their school in the Bronx was looking for speech therapists. And so I, you know, replied that I'm interested. And then she sent me the information and she told me a little bit about the population. But I was like, you know what, I'm just going to apply. Let's see what happens. And I just got a really good feel during the interview process. All the staff was really, really nice and helpful. And they knew like that I didn't have like that much experience working with this specific population, but they were, you know, everyone still to this day has been willing to help me. And so I was just like, yeah, I'll try it. And honestly, like, I love it. Yeah, it sounds really, really cool. Are there multiple SLPs on the staff? Oh, yeah. There's okay. six of us. Oh, great. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So before you got into this school, since it is so niche, is there anything that you saw, like, let's say you saw it every day, but you never really knew about it when you were in grad school? I feel like there might be that one thing that was like, oh, yeah, this happens every day, but I, no one warned me. <laughs> well, I, I think um, two things. So I talk about this with my current coworkers all the time is in graduate school, I feel like they always give you like the textbook cases of certain population, the textbook case of autism, the textbook case of, you know, cerebral palsy, whatever. But now, you know, that I've been working for a few years, it's a lot of these students more and more are not the textbook case. And a lot of them will have multiple sometimes challenges going on and it's like stuff that like you didn't realize or you didn't really learn about in graduate school because that wasn't like the classic case of you know whatever they gave you mm -hmm. I think also too like they talked about it in when I was in graduate school but really not like a lot a lot but really um they're pushing more in any school setting 
to kind of be like a multimodal sensory learner for the students. And I saw that even when I was in the gen ed public school setting, like they're having more adaptive classrooms with, you know, certain kind of chairs <laughs> and fidget toys for the kids and like sensory breaks. So that's something that I didn't really see talked about too, too much in graduate school. Mm -hmm. But now there's so many different schools out there and so many different ways that the students learn. Yeah, there's there's definitely been a big shift in that thinking. So because we're thinking about it in that way and all of these other approaches, one of the things you hear about all the time, at least in grad school, is that working in the public school systems can be challenging because resources are low and caseloads are high. What is some advice that you have for SLPs who are preparing to work in that system and incorporating some of those different multimodal approaches. Yeah, I mean, it's and it, it's true. When I worked in just like the gen ed, you know, public schools, my caseloads were, you know, 40 to 50 students. And but most of them see the difference is most of them you'll see in a group session. So you'll be pulling four or five students. Mm -hmm. Now I have 15 students on my caseload but they are seen three times a week and it has to be individual and they have a lot more needs. So that's like the flip side to it. But yes, overall, like in general, if you work in a school setting, there will be higher caseloads. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the schools right now, honestly, are still going through a shortage post COVID, whether it's trying to find teachers, OTs, you know, speech therapists. So they're still kind of struggling to find enough SLPs to cover all those numbers. And more children need the services these days. And my advice to be as far as like the resources would be to have a resource that you can use for multiple things, for multiple goals. Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like if you, you know, if you want to carry around like 15 different toys or whatever all day you can, but if you will see like you can get creative with a few different toys targeting multiple goals. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be super helpful when, you know, if you're working in a school setting that has a low budget or, or you have like a high case. So that's really going to be very helpful. You'd mentioned earlier that you worked between the ages of like kindergarten to eighth grade or mid yeah, middle school included. Yeah, preschool all the way through middle. Yeah. Preschool to middle. Is that like you at one time you were seeing all of those different age groups or was that that you were exposed to just like different populations because you moved around a district? Yeah. So they basically told me where to go. I mean, they asked me in the interview, like, oh, have you had experience, you know, with these ages? And I said, you know, yes, um, I have. And that's kind of why they placed me at the preschool, elementary and middle school. But there again, also, these children needed the services and they didn't have other SLPs for the other schools. So I kind of had to be spread out. And sometimes that happens in certain districts where you might be split between two schools or three schools. Got it. Perfect. Yeah. You've talked a lot about working in schools. You said that you loved it. What are like your top three things that you reasons you love it? Like why should more SLPs go to schools? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, if you are like me, I think my, my first reason I said this before, but if you're like me and you like the structure of I clock in at 8.15 and at 3.15 I can turn my brain off, 
that to me is like amazing because then like I can do whatever I want. I can go to the gym. I can hang out with my family, my friends versus if you work in a private practice, you're going to be working nine to five or you may be seeing clients you know, at night, but you have a break during the day. So having that structure, if you're someone who really thrives on routine, like I do that, I would say is like, for me, the first benefit. Um, the second benefit is that for most school districts, you'll get paid in the summer and you have the summer off. <laughs> so like, you know, cause your salary will be spread over the 12 months. And then you won't even have to work in the summer or you could do like something private on the side. Mm -hmm. And that also brings me to the third, um, I guess, benefit or, you know, point is that if you do something structured during the day, working at a school, let's say from 815 to 315, you could work at a private practice two or three days during the week after school and make money on the side because you know, like you have that set structure, but then you have extra time for flexibility in the afternoon or the night. So you can get the best of both worlds. Love it. I mean, that all sounds great. I love the opportunity, any opportunity you get where you get to work on a couple of your side things, some other things you enjoy. It's a win. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you wrote a whole book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which we are definitely getting to. But you mentioned something you said you might be off, let's say at 315. And then you get to go do things. Does that mean that you actually have time during your day to also get your notes done? Yes. I love this question because everyone always loves to ask the paperwork question. You can't Um, help it. (laughs) No, and I, and I, I get it honestly. So I will say again, it depends on um, your school. It depends. And also like what, you know, what district you're working at. So for my um, current school, again, it is such a specialized school, but I know myself and I'm a morning person. So for example, Technically, I don't have to be at work until 8.15, but I will get there, let's say at 7.45, and that's when I am doing like my lesson planning, catching up on emails, um, you know, putting orders in for supplies, all of that stuff. As far as doing daily notes, I will do that during the day, um, like on the preps that I have, or if a student is absent, I might, you know, catch up during that time, but our students start to get dismissed at like 2.30. So then from like 2.30 to 3.15, we have that time to do billing or catch up on other emails, whatever it is. Now that's my school. Again, if that that's the hard part about schools is that it's going to vary based on this, you know, the schedule of the school and where you're at. Yeah. And you might have to find just like the district or the school itself that fits you. Exactly. Exactly. Sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So I had mentioned before about how sometimes resources are low and caseloads are high. What are some of your favorite resources that also might translate to different age groups? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I really like to do anything that's like super hands-on, super tactile. Um, so I would say first thing that comes to mind is Play-Doh. You could do that with preschool. You could do that with elementary. Um, I would even like things like arts and crafts wise, like dot markers, stickers. Um, the middle school kids is kind of where it gets a little bit more challenging because, you know, they're older and then speech isn't cool anymore. But for them, I did a lot of like board games um, and like music activities. 
So that's what I would do for middle school. But for preschool and elementary, you could overlap a lot of materials, the Play-Doh, um, arts and crafts. You could do, I know there's popular ones. Like um, I also love a lot of books like by Eric Carle, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. There was an old lady who swallowed the leaves, the bat, that whole series. And again, depending on, you know, the age of your student and what the goals are. Like I have a lot of my students that are, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old chronologically, but developmentally they're two, you know, three years old. They have very young goals. So it depends on the specific goals in your population, but you could definitely overlap. Okay. And then I have a really crazy, really crazy thought that you're going to be like, I don't even know if I can answer that. Are you nuts? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think is the most common formal assessment that you give like day to day? Or I guess yearly. No, I guess not day to day. Like I guess over a year. Like, what do you think is the most frequented assessment that you give? So, at least in New York State, we have to do an annual every year, and then every three years, it's called a triennial. So Mm -hmm. for the annual, it's more of informal observation, and you're just kind of reporting on the goals based on your data. When you have to do the triennial, that's more of the standardized testing. Okay. Um, and that is to determine, you know, if this, if the child still qualifies for special education services, specifically for speech. When I was in the gen ed public school setting, honestly, I gave the self like 90% of the time because that covers every area and it has all those subtests, which is like a pain in the neck to give and to score, but it does cover everything. And then if there was like, you know, a specific area, maybe that the child scored low in, then maybe I would do like an additional test or if they also were having um, articulation concerns, then maybe I would do like the Goldman Fristo. But that is pretty much like Oh, that, that's the test that if, if, if there was like one test that your school could buy or that you would want to know about to me, it would be the self because it just covers everything. Love it. I'm always interested to hear if it varies from state to state or if it even just varies from person to person. Who knows? I'm just I'm going to start asking that when I talk to school. SLPs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. OK, another question on that, just because now you got me thinking. Are parents allowed to request that you assess a child Or is it like multiple people have to consider it? Is it just something that is affecting them? Because we always talk about how it has to be affecting them in the school setting, in their education. So what does that look like? So sometimes what will happen is usually it's kind of one or two cases. Like either the teacher will, you know, might bring it up to me as a speech therapist saying, hey, I'm having concern about Johnny um, with, you know, following directions or answering questions. So just so you know, I'm going to reach out to the parents and the other team members so we can hold a meeting. Mm -hmm. You always have to have a meeting and discuss with the parent first because you need their permission, obviously, right, to do any kind of testing. Mm -hmm. Or the parent can voice a concern to the teacher or myself. And then again, we would have a meeting and then start the testing. Now, what happens sometimes is the concern could be there. It could be valid. But like you said, it has to have an educational impact. So sometimes children will score, you know, within the normal limits or even above, but the parent is really concerned 
that they're not saying the S or the L or whatever, but it's not enough of an educational impact. And typically, then that's when we have to refer them to the private practice. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And are you allowed to refer to private practice? Oh, yeah. Like, and you you know, you'd put it in the report and some kind of statement about how like Johnny scored, you know, within normal limits, but the parent still has a concern. So Mm -hmm. follow up with private practice is recommended. Okay. One last one about schools, because we're going to jump in your book next, which I'm really excited to hear about. (laughs) Is there any other pieces of advice that you would give to SLPs who are just starting out in the school setting about just I mean, you know what it looks like. I have no idea. So what are some of the things people should kind of expect or know or be prepared for? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you're working in any school, in any state, there are a lot of people in the schools. You have like the principal, OT, PT, teachers, special ed. So there's always going to be a lot of people involved. Um, And honestly, that's a pro and a con because it's a con because sometimes people can get too involved and it can be tough in the school sometimes. Not everyone's gonna be nice to you. You know, it could be another SLP. The pro though is that you do have a lot of people to kind of, you know, bounce ideas off of. And I say this because obviously if you're working in a private practice, you have more of that, you know, individuality and freedom because it's just kind of like you and maybe, you know, your boss, like one or two people. Mm -hmm. When you're in the school, there's a lot more people involved. And like I said, it could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing, but just keep, you know, keep an open mind. And honestly, your first probably year or two, you'll be getting a lot of feedback and it's really hard not to take it personal because again, you think that, you know, you're supposed to know everything, um, but try not to take it personally. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have another one. I can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do when a kid comes in, like mom asks you to assess them, teacher's concern, and the kid just really has no idea that there's anything going on and they don't really understand why they have to see you? What do you do with that? And let's say they're even like older, like they're nine. Yeah. Um, so typically what I have done in the past, anytime I've had to, especially if it's an initial evaluation, I always ask the teacher, I'm like, is like what first I also asked the principal, like, what's the school policy? Are we allowed to tell the child that, you know, they're being, you know, evaluated? Mm-hmm. And then I asked the teacher, you know, is the child aware of the concern? And so to kind of get that background information, because honestly, like the teachers and the teacher's assistants in the classroom, they will know that student better than you because they're just with them more. You're only seeing that child a little bit here and there during the week. Um, so then depending on that feedback, that would determine, you know, how I would approach that student. And there have been times where I have seen students and they're like, I don't want to do speech. This is boring. You know, why do I have to be here? And I validate their feelings. Like, I think just honestly remembering that, especially if they're older, like my middle school students, like I validate them. Like I get it. Like you're a human. What I'm asking you to do is not fun. I pulled you from something that was fun. You know, you're not with your friends right now. And what I'm asking you to do is hard. It's challenging, right? That's why it's a goal for them. You know, it's like when we go to the gym or we have goals for ourselves, it's hard. So it's just like, it's hard for them. Mm -hmm. So I try to validate, you know, their feelings. And then I try to give them breaks during the test 
to make it easier for them. Yeah. I feel like that's really hard, especially if like their parents don't really tell them that this is about to happen and you're taking them out and they're like, am I in trouble? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of the time too, like the teachers will be good and kind of give them like a heads up. Um, and you know, you try to make it fun you say, okay, like you're going to go now with me and you know, we're going to look at some pictures. Like I downplay it. I'm not, I don't say like, okay, we're going to sit for the self and that's <laughs> nine subjects and this is going to take us like a week. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to look at some pictures, we're going to answer some questions, and you'll get a prize at the end, we'll take some breaks. So I try to downplay it. Love it, love it. Okay, that made me think of one more thing. I keep saying that. Eventually, I'll get that it's like 20 more things. Um, How often do the parents say like, no, don't look at my child? Oh, honestly, I don't think I've, I'm trying to think. I don't think I've really ever come across that. I mean, honestly, it's usually the opposite. Like most of the times when I've had to like say like, okay, your kid graduated speech, congrats. Like they mastered all the goals. That's when the parents freak out and they're like, no, he needs to stay in speech. Like what if he regresses? Like, you know, is he ready? So I've never really had the opposite where the parents have refused services. Now there have been times where the parents don't fully accept the extent Mm -hmm. of the delays that the child has, right? The child, you know, has been identified with autism and the parent isn't there with accepting that maybe your child needs a device. I've seen that, um, but I've never seen a parent like flat out refuse services. Mm -hmm. Got it. Should you make a (laughs) referral? I'm not even going to say it's another question. Do (laughs) Do you make a referral for an autism diagnosis elsewhere, or is there a school psychologist on the premises who is able to do that? Most of the time there will be like, as part of the intake team, like at the school, there will be a school psychologist. And sometimes, I mean, the parents are more than welcome to, to, you know, get a second, third opinion by going to their own developmental pediatrician. Um, And ultimately, you know, our job is we present the information, we can suggest recommendations, but if the parent doesn't want to take it, unfortunately, we can't force them. Um, but yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, let's jump into your book. So your book is called <laughs> Sophie's Special Story. I just want to know before we get into it, why did you choose to do this? What motivated you? Where did this come from? Yeah, so ironically, it, we've kind of touched a little bit already, but it was when I was in graduate school doing my clinical externship at a school and I realized I'm like I love the school settings I'm like but you're they do have high caseloads and a lot of students are grouped so I said SLPs need more resources that can target multiple goals and books can do that and it was around the time when I got my dog Sophie so that's kind of how the idea and everything came together Oh, Sophie, she just gets to be memorialized in a book forever. <laughs> I know, I know. She's a main character energy all the way. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I have a specific question, but I want you to first tell us a little bit about the story, how it benefits SLPs, all that good stuff. Yeah, so the book is, you know, about my journey with Sophie, why I got her, you know, how she helped my life, why dogs are great, kind of that like cute little story. And then I put in there visual and verbal prompts for SLPs, 
parents, teachers, um, with like a picture of the mouth on how to produce the correct S sound. Because specifically when I was working in the public school setting, a lot of times children struggle with that S. Mm -hmm. And then parents and teachers would come up to me and say, you know, what can we do? How can we help him in the classroom? Or how can we work on it at home? Well, this has, you know, the book has it built in and it gives, there's a bunch of S adjectives in there as well that they can practice their S sounds. So you have you have been using it, I imagine, in your school settings. How have kids been responding to it? How have parents been responding to it, like taking it home individually? Since this is probably the first time they've ever seen in a book tactile and visual cueing for their child. Yeah, they honestly, the children love it. I think for them, because, you know, like the the cover here and it's just like I think for them they don't even which is the best part is they don't even realize like they're doing work or they're mm-hmm. practicing speech because it's about a dog and it's like cute and fun and it kind of has you know the speech therapy thrown in there but even like whether I've gone to schools or libraries or community centers um, and you know worked with the kids read to the kids they've always responded you know really well and that was my goal too was I wanted to make it fun for them. Like, I cannot stand when there are speech goals that are written like a drill. Like, so-and-so will practice, you know, initial S for five minutes, you know, three times a week. Have you ever tried to get a four-year-old or a three-year-old to sit for five straight minutes and then just say, son, son, son? Like, that sounds terrible. I can't even get my five-year-old to do that, so. Exactly, exactly. So I wanted to make it, you know, fun, but still you could, you know, kind of sprinkle in the learning and the speech therapy in there. Yeah. One of my favorite things about it is that it has like questions kind of embedded into it to produce language and give opportunities for expressive language. And in a way it guides, it's almost like a really great book for new parents and even just like people who are reading with their kids for the first time to look at because it's almost like a cookbook to how to interact with books regular books like how you ask these questions how you talk about what's on the page yeah and I even have told parents too because parents you know they don't realize it's like whether it's my book or any book you don't have to sit there with your child and read every single word on the page you could just open the book and ask that wh question right Mm -hmm. Where are they going? What, you know, what animal is Sophie? So you're right. It has that natural, those natural expressive language goals already built in. Mm -hmm. What was the process like to, to get this book out there? Honestly, it was once I found the publishing company, it was very smooth. And, you know, that's kind of what I was debating. Do I want to self-publish? Do I want to use a publishing company? I personally am very happy that I went with a publishing company because it was a one-stop shop. Mm -hmm. They did all the editing. They did all the illustrations and then the printing and everything. So it was great because especially for me, you know, this is my first time doing this. I wasn't ready to like self-publish and then I would have to do the pictures on my own. How would I get, you know, hard copies out there? So for me, once the publishing company did their thing and that took about eight, nine months, it was pretty smooth sailing. That's so cool. What yeah. advice do you have for people who have a similar venture in mind? They don't really know what to do yet, but they, they want to get other materials out there in a similar way other than just do it, what else could they do? <laughs> I know, 
was definitely going to say that. I was going to say, like, go for it. Like, do it. I mean, yeah. I think it's so wonderful. Like, there are so many, you know, speech OT accounts that I follow where, yeah, the field is really expanding where whether people are creating other resources or they're doing podcasts or, you know, YouTube channels. And it's great because it's taking the field into a new direction and we're getting, you know, knowledge and resources out there in a new fun way. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely say do it. And then um, also, yeah, go on Google, see what you can find, like research. Like if you also want to write a book, Google, like, publishing um, through a company versus self-publishing. Um, you know, if you wanted to create some kind of toy or puppet, you could, you know, look it up on Google or listen to a podcast about it. There are so many different resources out there. But yeah, I mean, I highly encourage people to do it. Perfect. I saw that you have these like magnets that go with the book that you can like use it with the book. Was it magnets or stickers? I think it was magnets, not stickers. I have magnets and bookmarks too. I don't okay. know which one you... I think yeah. it was the magnets then. So how yeah. do you integrate that into the book when you're playing with it? Well, reading and playing. Yeah, well, I mean, technically, like the magnet, it's kind of just like the cover mm-hmm. like of the book. Um, but you can move that along like from each page. Yeah. And that's great too because it'll hold your child's attention. You could also give it to your child to hold mm-hmm. and, you know keep them engaged in the book and say okay like you know we're gonna read the book right now you hold this so kind of different just an extra tactile reinforcer yeah and they can totally use it to like signal that that's the book that they want to read for the day or they can go grab it oh, 100%. and say like yeah. story time <laughs> yeah <laughs> for our young readers okay so one of the things I really like about the book is that you have the specific sounds patterns like you said s s clusters is what it's focusing on and other language goals are we going to get to hear more about Sophie's story in different ways and integrate other target sounds? Is story is Sophie going on more journeys? What are you thinking? Yeah, I do. I want to write, I think, at least one or two more books in the Sophie series specifically. And the next book or books will target other goals, but still have Sophie as the main character. Um, and I, I don't want to say too much yet because I have to get the okay from the publishing company. Um but yeah, so that is the plan. And then I also would love to write, you know, other, just other books as well, uh, you know, aside from this series. So yeah, I definitely want to keep doing it. Yeah, I think you should. I think it's really great. And I'm sure a lot of SLPs are responding really well to this. If there was another sound that was really big and really popular that you've seen in the school that maybe there aren't a lot of books um, that are reinforcing it, what would that sound be? Ooh, I would say either L or R. R's are tricky because you have, you know, the initial R, but then you have all the vocalic R's. Mm -hmm. So that's that's always um, a tricky one. But then also I've seen, you know, children struggle with those L's. So either one. I love an L. That sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we're looking at like those, definitely those harder sounds. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love it. Is there anything else that you want to promote about the book that you want to tell our listeners? Anything else on the horizon? Um, I would say, you know, in case listeners want to know, like the ideal, you know, age range for the book would kind of be like preschool through second, third grade. Um, and it's a great resource, you know, for 
families, for teachers, if you want to get it as a gift um, for someone or, you know, for local libraries and schools. Um, and then, yeah, my Instagram is at speech solutions underscore. And the book is available in hardcover and ebook Kindle. So whether Ooh. you go on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, you have that option. That's perfect. And just in case anyone's wondering, five stars on Amazon. That's what we like to hear. I mean, people <laughs> <Thank> love <you. laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Of course. Let's get into our wrap up. If you're ready yes. for that, unless there's anything else that you want to tell our listeners about grad school or about starting out in the field, please give it to us all the goods. Oh, the only other thing I um, just popped in my head, if anyone is going to the ASHA convention um, this year, they are auctioning off my book. Okay. <laughs> all right. So there you go. <laughs> so yeah, there I'll will be there. Be... Say hi to me too. Yeah. <laughs> there will be a copy of my book there being auctioned off. So if you're thinking about getting the book and you happen to be there, it'll be there. So amazing. Are you going to be selling it there too? I don't think I'll be able to get to the convention this year, unfortunately, um, because I just started with this school yeah. and I have book events planned for November and December already, mm -hmm. but I definitely am hoping to have a booth for the following year and then I definitely yeah would be selling it there love it that sounds really great thank you for telling us thank you <laughs> okay so let's jump into our wrap-up section then what is your go-to book movie or tv series that you consume when you need a mood boost oh that's so good um I mean, so for go-to book, I don't have like a specific book. I have a, like genres. Okay. Either I'll read like mysteries or self-help, like manifestation motivational. Mm -hmm. So I kind of switch on and off. Um, for a TV series, honestly, it varies. It could be like Law & Order, SVU, or it could be like those, you know, like Netflix shows like Virgin River, I love so it kind of again it kind of varies yeah. but right now because it's Halloween and fall time and I love it it's Hocus Pocus or Halloween Town all the way yeah I have watched Hocus Pocus literally three times in the last 10 days and I've seen how every Halloween Town every night like that's what I go that's what I fall asleep to because I need yes. a fall asleep movie yes. but then also because I love spooky my roommate and I are obsessing over vampire diaries yes everybody oh, I I've, love it. I've already seen it yes I know don't come for me but please talk to me about it all day because 100 percent. yes no I love vampire diaries and honestly like love it they don't make these Halloween movies like that anymore like I so I love those now because that's just it's just like the best because they're just yeah. cute they're cute they're, and, and I mean yes. I love something scary too I want something scare like a little scary sexy and like fun okay last question is where can our listeners find and follow you we got your book details I'm definitely going to drop that in the show notes below but where can they find you because they might have questions yeah, um, so I have a Facebook page, and that's just a public page, Sophie's Special Story. So if you just, you know, search that, it should pop right up. And then, yeah, my um, public Instagram is at speechsolutions underscore. And, yeah, if anyone has any questions, DM me. I usually, like, respond pretty, pretty quickly or right away. But, yeah, definitely happy to connect. 
Amazing. And I will make sure to link all of that down below in the show notes. Gabriella, I really appreciate you coming on today. This was so much fun. I haven't had anybody in the schools yet, which is crazy, but it was re- that's why I had like 8 million questions and I actually am bottling up like 25 more. <laughs> you can always reach out to me yeah I was like I can't just do this for three hours because, <laughs> because I, I could <laughs> yeah I'm always happy to help other you know SLPs like especially grad students mm-hmm. so you always can message me with questions great and one last one actually because it just popped into my head does your school your new one take CFs just because it's so unique and it's probably or do they even take extern extern people externers? No so extern students. I believe we do because my supervisor like sent out an email blast asking like which one of us would want to like work with the students and mentor them, and I happened to respond yes. So that I know we do do the CFs. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I want to say yes because my other coworker did her CF at the at you know my current school that I'm working at so I think yes okay good I'm glad I asked that because I think people would be really interested like that's such a cool opportunity it's so unique and it's kind of a niche that you probably won't get the chance to really do again yeah and you I mean I'm learning so much yeah yeah totally different ways of cueing and different ways of like helping if they're visually impaired like that's I'm, I can't even start to think about what that would look like. And it's so amazing that you get to do that every day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Really cool. Okay, well, thank you again, Gabriella. I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. Yeah, this is so great. And everybody else, we will catch you next week. Thank you all so much for listening to Speeching It Real. Please help us reach a bigger audience by rating us five stars and dropping a review. You can contact me anytime on Instagram at speechingitreal or via email at speechingitreal at gmail.com. You can reach out with any questions, comments, or recommendations.